Um, well, today's lecturer is Professor uh, Greg Duncan, but before I talk about him, I want to say a little bit about the Sydney Ball Memorial Lecture Series, which I can say thanks to some research that uh, my predecessor, George Smith, did to find out about this lecture series, which actually began in 1919. Uh, it's named after Sydney Ball, um, who was a fellow of um, St John's and uh, at the time, and uh, was seen as a, a socialist don, a radical reforming don, who was very keen, for example, on uh, women, women uh, studying um, at Oxford, and he was particularly concerned that um, social and economic problems should be studied at the University of Oxford. And as head of the Department of Social Policy and Social Work, I'm still keen that the university should study economic and social uh, problems and uh, policies and interventions to um, tackle them. Um, and when he uh, died in 1918, um, some of his friends and colleagues got together to produce a fund to fund the uh, Sydney Ball Memorial uh, Lecture. The first one was given, in, as I said, in 1919. George told me, I think, that it was in French. Um, but today you'll be glad to know it's going to be in English, uh, or at least American English. Um, and, and actually, the, Greg's predecessors sound like a who's who's list of British social policy, actually, because it includes John Maynard Keynes, uh, Beatrice Webb, William Beveridge, uh, Richard Tawney, A.H. Uh, uh, Halsey, and uh, David Donison. So quite a sort of stellar list of um, speakers in this um, series. Uh, our two most recent lecturers were both actually from the States. Um, they were uh, Professors Neil Gilbert and Professor Paul Pearson, both from the University of California, Berkeley. Our speaker today, Professor Greg Duncan, is from the University of California, Irvine. So we've gone from Britain to um, California. Um, he uh, was for many years at Northwestern University, as I'm sure you um, know. He's done lots of uh, research on income distribution, child uh, poverty, and related topics. He's now a distinguished professor in the Department of Education at uh, Irvine. Uh, his C CV is extremely um, impressive, and I've just picked out some of the books that he's uh, written or edited. They include Higher Ground, New Hope for the Working Poor and Their Children, For Better or Worse, Welfare Reform and the Wellbeing of Children, Consequences of Growing Up Poor, which is the first of his pieces of work that I uh, ever read, and a two-volume book, uh, Neighbourhood uh, Poverty, which incidentally was co-edited uh, by Larry Aber, who has an association with this um, department. So I'm absolutely delighted to introduce uh, Professor Duncan today. The title of his lecture is Early Childhood Poverty and Adult Attainment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a great honor to, uh, to be here. You left A.C. Pagu off the list. <laughs> it's quite a, uh, quite a long list indeed. Um, I want to uh, talk today about uh, poverty and children's uh, development, uh, and in particular relate poverty uh, early in childhood to uh, uh, the life chances of children. What happens to children who are poor early in their life as they grow up uh, and move into adulthood? I want to set the stage by presenting a little bit of British data uh, as compared with other countries on poverty rates for young children. The median family income uh, in Britain now is around uh, 440 pounds uh, per week. 
Uh, one way that poverty is defined uh, using an income scale is to uh, cut uh, a poverty line that's uh, some percentage of that median income, either 50%, 60%, or 40%. Uh, in this particular research, uh, using data from the Luxembourg income study, the uh, cut points were 40 uh, and 50% of median. What I'm showing here are the fractions of young children, children under the age of six, uh, who are poor, in other words, have family income below 40% uh, of the median, in other words, an income uh, of under 181 pounds per week, a very low standard indeed. Uh, and as you can see, uh, Britain fares reasonably well compared to uh, uh, continental European countries. What I've done is to just take a couple of examples, Germany and Switzerland. Uh, there are more data available for the continental countries, and these two countries are fairly representative. Same way with Scandinavian countries. I've just taken a couple of them, and there were data from a couple of uh, other economies, Israel and Poland. So in each case, uh, within each country, the median income is found, and then there's a cut point of 40% below that median. The U.S. proudly leads the way in child poverty. It always, uh, always has and probably always will. But the British rate is quite a bit lower, uh, about equal to, uh, to Germany's rate, uh, considerably higher than the Scandinavian rate. Scandinavian poverty rates are always very low. So now uh, suppose we move that line up from 40% of the median to 50% of the median. So we're adding about 40 pounds per week up to uh, 221 pounds. And what you see is that the British poverty rate triples to about 21%. Britain no longer compares favorably uh, with uh, continental countries, and certainly not uh, Scandinavian countries. It has a poverty rate that's almost as high uh, as the U.S. rate, if you use the same standard for, um, for poverty, cutting the U.S. Uh, median income at 50%. So uh, there are many British children who aren't poor but are very close to that 40% of the poverty line. The official statistics in Britain uh, usually use a 50% or 60% uh, poverty line. Um, so these rates are even higher if we went up to 60%. But you can see that uh, the number of British children who are poor numbers in the uh, millions and it amounts to quite a substantial fraction of the, uh, of the British population of young children. So I want to talk today about the consequences of this poverty for children's uh, life chances and to what extent poverty uh, in and of itself uh, compromises life chances. The policy issue that I want to address to sharpen things is how would adult outcomes change if policy boosted poor young children's family incomes uh, but did not directly change any other characteristics of their children or family environments? Right? So what we're trying to do now is isolate the economic component of uh, disadvantage. Uh, it's certainly not the only important uh, component, um, but it's one that's most amenable to policy manipulation. We have many re income redistribution policies. So I want to uh, change just that element. Right? It's really a, 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 a somewhat subtle question. Uh, it's looking beyond the correlations to really try to get at the causal role of income in and of itself. Uh, in affecting uh, not only um, outcomes for children as children, but also outcomes for children when they grow up and become adults. The kind of model I have in mind 
will link early childhood poverty, which I define as poverty before age six, to adult achievement, uh, labor market earnings, uh, work hours, uh, behavior, crime, for example, adult crime, uh, adult health, right? That's the, that's the total uh, linkage that I want to draw. The process by which uh, adult achievement, health, and behavior is affected is presumably operating through child achievement, uh, health, and behavior, right? So we want to know uh, what are the effects of early childhood poverty um, on adult accomplishments, but as they operate through uh, child achievement and behavior. Now, what sort of mechanisms uh, do we have in mind? There's an emerging literature on early brain development, uh, which is really quite scary and showing how important early conditions are for wiring up the brain, not only for cognitive function, uh, for uh, the body's stress response. In other words, uh, we all have inherited an ability to mobilize our body's resources to stress. But uh, in some cases, particularly in the case of child abuse, you have uh, stress responses which are uh, wildly abnormal, and children are unable to bring back their uh, their stress response to normal levels. Uh, we're talking about immune function, the extent to which a, a body's uh, lifelong ability to uh, fight off infections, for example, might be compromised for, by early conditions. There's a very scary little uh, animal model experiment where uh, pregnant uh, rats were exposed to two loud stresses every afternoon in the first third of their uh, pregnancy. That was the only treatment. It was an experimental uh, study. The pups were born. Uh, they grew to adulthood. And then the, the two sets of now adult pups were exposed to a, uh, a cold virus. And the rates at which the, the children born to the stressed uh, mothers uh, caught colds when exposed to the cold virus is, uh, was quite a bit higher than for the, uh, the other mice. It's always dangerous to generalize from animal models to human models, <laughs> but there's increasing evidence now that conditions early in childhood, uh, as well as throughout childhood, can compromise uh, the immune function and lead to poor health. There's also uh, a literature about the uh, importance of nutritional adequacy uh, during pregnancy, as well as the neonatal period. The so-called Barker hypothesis uh, links food insufficiency early in life to lifelong changes in, uh, in body mass, for example, uh, and other aspects of health. So not only cognitive function, which I think is what we think of most naturally, but other uh, ways in which the, the brain gets wired up early in life might well be affected by the economic conditions uh, during uh, pregnancy as well as the early childhood years. Economists have models where the focus is on what money can buy, what a higher income does in early childhood, what it does is to enable parents to purchase uh, books, uh, to take kids to museums, to provide other sources of uh, cognitive stimulation which might help children. Uh, it can affect the type and quality of child care that uh, parents can choose for their preschool children. Uh, and it can obviously affect the quality of the schools and neighborhoods uh, that the family can purchase with its income. So those, that's the, uh, the what money can buy kind of model uh, explaining why early childhood economic deprivation <coughs> might affect uh, later accomplishments. Uh, developmental psychologists tend to focus on uh, family processes such as mental health and parenting. 
So there's a, a, a very rich literature showing how uh, economic deprivation and events like unemployment can affect maternal rates of depression, uh, which in turn can affect the harsh parenting uh, to the detriment of children. So whether it's brain research, whether it's economic models, whether it's uh, developmental psychological models of family processes, there are many ways in which early economic conditions might affect a child achievement, behavior, and health, and in turn affect uh, adult levels. So what I want to do in the talk is to uh, review some recent research linking early childhood poverty to child achievement, behavior, and health. These are unusually rigorous studies that show surprising convergence in their estimated effects of childhood poverty on these outcomes. And then I want to talk about some, uh, some brand new evidence in a forthcoming publication that I've been part of uh, that links early childhood poverty to adult uh, work hours, health, uh, behavior, uh, and so forth. So let's talk a little bit about how one goes about estimating the effects, the causal effects of poverty. Uh, John Ermish uh, has a nice paper in 2001 using the British Household Panel Survey that related economic conditions for British children uh, during adolescence, controlling for family structure, uh, parental education levels, and other things, on subsequent outcomes. And what they found was that uh, holding constant those other factors, British children who'd spent their adolescent years in a poor household, uh, left home earlier, had less educational attainment, uh, or more likely to be economically in inactive, which is to say neither working nor uh, in school or in the military, uh, and for females, uh, we're more likely to bear children at young ages, right? The kinds of uh, uh, attainment and behavioral outcomes that, uh, uh, that we care about. But how to estimate these causal effects? At the same time, this same study by, uh, by John Ermish found uh, correlations between a lot of these outcomes and other factors of the family, uh, parental school education levels, parent family structure, so it's the familiar problem of establishing causation from non-experimental data. Uh, it's a very difficult, difficult problem. But the uh, first set of studies that I want to describe have found uh, clever ways to try to get around that problem. So we need to be confident uh, that the income variations that we're relating to the child outcomes uh, are largely beyond the control of the family, either with an elaborate set of control variables or through policy changes, such as child allowances, uh, social policy experiments. Um, there are two examples of where policy changes have been exploited to try to estimate the effects of income on child outcomes. There's a paper by uh, Gordon Dahl and Lance Lochner. Uh, in the United States, uh, the Earned Income Tax Credit uh, was a policy that began in the 80s but expanded dramatically in the 1990s, and it ties uh, a tax credit to earned income uh, it's now a very generous program by U.S. standards. Uh, it pays as much as uh, $4,500 uh, per year uh, to a low-income working family. And that 4500 figure is considerably higher than it had been in the past. So what Dahl and Lochner are able to do is to uh, take a, a child development data set, the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, which observes child outcomes over the period in which uh, these earned income tax credits were low and uh, the earned income tax credits were much higher uh, and develop an estimate of the effects of income on uh, child test scores uh, using just the 
exogenous change in social policy caused by the uh, uh, earned income tax credit. Kevin Milligan and Mark Stabile uh, do the same thing with the Canadian Child Tax Benefit, which was also quite generous and expanded substantially in the late 1990s. They were able to uh, relate uh, changes in those benefits, which are largely beyond the control of uh, the families, uh, to outcomes for children. Uh, in both cases, there's a remarkable convergence in the bottom lines to their analysis. Both suggest that uh, a $3,000 increase, about 2,000 pounds uh, per year, um, 2,000 pounds is about the 40 pounds per week that it would take to bring uh, a, a child up from 40% of the median to 50% of the median, if you think of the first uh, slide that I talked about. So that, that $3,000 per year uh, increase in family income, annual family income, early in childhood uh, is associated with a test score gain of about uh, a fifth of a standard deviation. So in, uh, on an IQ scale of fifth of a standard deviation is about three points. All right? not, uh, not huge, but, uh, but quite significant in a statistical sense. And as I'll show a little bit later, important in a policy sense. A third study I'm going to spend a little bit of more time, a little bit more time with uh, which used random assignment social policy experiments in the United States. The U.S. in the 1990s and uh, even in the 80s was uh, blessed with a number of very rigorous, well-done, random assignment welfare-to-work studies. Uh, in the 1990s, states were experimenting with welfare reform before the, the U.S. Uh, federal welfare reform came in 1996. And the government required states uh, in exchange for being granted waivers from the existing system to try out their new ideas uh, to evaluate them with random assignment experiments. So the, the control groups continue to live under the old rules and the, the treatment groups uh, randomly assigned are subjected to a, an assortment of uh, welfare to work treatments. And those treatments divide into uh, two big groups. This is uh, 11 studies altogether, 11 different policy experiments uh, that we're lumping together. Some of them incorporate earning supplements. Uh, it's, it's in the carrot and stick world of social policy. These are the, uh, the carrot uh, experiments where the focus was on boosting work through incentives, through uh, adding more to earnings for people who... Uh, who went into the labor force. Uh, the stick approach uh, was represented in a number of uh, these experiments. These worked mostly by uh, sanctioning moms. These are almost, uh, single, almost all single mother families. Sanctioned them for not complying with the rules and uh, cutting benefits. So uh, there was no incentive uh, other than the, the stick to uh, uh, avoid cutting benefits. But it sets up a nice contrast, because not only do you have within each of these policy experiments the tr treatment control contrast, but you can look at as, as a whole between the, the policy experiments that relied on earning supplements versus that, uh, the ones that didn't. So let me present some results to try to set up how this eventually relates to how income affects child uh, development. What's important here about <laughs> these bars is not their little differences, but how, how similar they are. All right, so here we've taken, it's 20,000 children altogether in this collection of 11 experiments. Some are in, half are in families that were in the treatment groups, half were in families in the control groups. 
If you take all those children and divide them up according to their age at the, the baseline of these experiments, when the experiments first began, and look to their mother's earnings to try to see whether or not the mothers in the experimental groups differed from the mothers in the control groups in terms of their earnings. So here we've got zero to two-year-olds in the first uh, pair of bars. Uh, the very first bar represents the, the zero to two-year-old children at the beginning of the experiments. This is the, 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 the difference between uh, the zero to two-year-old kids whose mothers were assigned to the treatment versus uh, controls. So uh, those mothers in these uh, treatment groups uh, on average, we're earning about $750 more per year uh, relative to the control group. In these other programs, the ones that didn't rely on earning supplements, you get a very similar kind of increase uh, in earnings. So both kinds of programs boosted uh, work. And that was true regardless of how old the children were. It, there's a little bit more of an impact uh, for older kids, but these are essentially identical results regardless of whether it was a carrot or stick approach and regardless of the child's age. If you look, on the other hand, at family income instead of earnings, you get a very different picture, right? The earnings supplement programs uh, took those earnings gains and topped them up with various kinds of benefits. So the increase in total family income in these earnings supplement programs for the treatment families relative to the controls uh, is on the order of uh, $1,500 to $2,000 a year. Again, it's the similarity of these earning supplement program impacts uh, that I want to emphasize. So all were successful in boosting income by a significant amount. This can be uh, on the order of 10 to 15 percent income boost uh, for the families uh, in these earning supplement program experiments. On the other hand, these stick programs tended to indeed increase earnings but at the same time, they reduced welfare benefits by an almost equal dollar-for-dollar dollar amount, right? So the two cancel each other out, and there was no net gain in, uh, in family income. So now we have a nice contrast. Looking across all these uh, experiments, we've got some of the programs that are boosting family income. All are boosting work. Some are boosting family income. Some aren't. So now we can look to the children uh, and their achievement scores to see if there is a pattern of positive impacts associated with the earning supplement programs, right, relative to the, uh, the, the other programs. And indeed there is, but only for young children. Okay? So here we're switching from income to achievement. These are test scores. We're scaling on a standard deviation scale. And again, we're looking at program impacts. So this is saying that uh, children who uh, began zero to two years of age when uh, uh, the experiments first began, who were in families in these experimental programs? The, the treatment families for those kids had higher test scores three to five years later. That's when this was uh, measured. Uh, relative to the control group. So this $1,500 boost in income was associated with a a 0.08 uh, gain in, in achievement. The other programs where family income wasn't affected produced no impact, positive or negative, on, uh, on children's achievement. Uh, slightly older kids, age three to five at the beginning, uh, also benefited in terms of uh, outperforming uh, their control group counterparts. So we've got this situation where 
kids of different ages are uh, being randomly assigned to uh, either programs that are boosting income or, or not. All are boosting work. And it's really only the children in the programs where income was increased and only the young children uh, whose achievement is, is increased uh, significantly. All right? So it's confirming the Dahl and Lochner and Milligan and Stabile kind of work in showing that uh, higher income indeed seems to be associated with uh, higher child achievement. And in fact, if you, um, if you think about these effect sizes, this is a, a, a 0.08 of a standard deviation impact associated with about a twelve dollars to $1,500 gain in income. If you relate that to the same $3,000 annual income gain in the other two studies, uh, you end up about tripling these numbers, and you end up very close to the 0.2 uh, standard deviation impact that the other two studies showed. So these three studies, all of which are relying on quite strong methods, uh, seem to be quite similar in what they imply about the effects of income. And what they say is that uh, early income seems to matter, and it seems to matter for uh, achievement-type outcomes, as measured by uh, test scores in this case. Uh, it's a very similar result, actually, to an older literature. Peter mentioned the, the uh, Consequences of Growing Up Poor book, which was uh, a 1997 book, which brought together uh, 12 different groups of researchers, uh, all with non-experimental data sets, all looking at uh, relationships between income and child outcomes. And one of the conclusions from that book was how remarkable the patterns were for effects of early income on achievement uh, type outcomes. Uh, later income in childhood didn't matter as much, uh, nor did income matter as much for behavior outcomes, uh, nor for health kind of outcomes. All right? But uh, across all these studies, it seems that early childhood income uh, has a significant, if not overwhelming, link to, uh, to these early achievements. So that's the first part of the empirical evidence that I want to uh, summarize. But now I want to turn to the title of my uh, talk, which is the effect of early childhood income on adult outcomes. Right? Very difficult to get information about that because very few studies have followed children from uh, very early in life uh, all the way through their adult years. But one of them has. Uh, the panel study of income dynamics. This was my life for 25 years at the uh, University of Michigan. And I'm glad to see that, uh, well, I was a little sad to see when I left, it, it just kept on without any problem at all. Um, <laughs> but I got over that, and now I'm very glad that it's uh, kept going on. I left in uh, 1994 when I uh, moved to Northwestern. Uh, but it's kept going, and uh, as recently as 2006, it's uh, continued to take interviews and uh, it's providing us with information. Uh, panel study of income dynamics uh, began with a representative national sample of U.S. families, uh, and it's continued to follow those families and all the individuals in those families every year or every other year recently uh, between 1968 and uh, in, the, in the present time. So we're drawing data through 2006. And because the study uh, follows not only adults but also children, it has a set of representative children who are born into these families after the study began. 
who are observed every single year from the prenatal year uh, all the way through uh, the end of childhood, which we're uh, defining in this analysis as age 15, but then they're, con- they're still followed uh, as they leave home, set up families, uh, establish careers. And with this 1968 to 2006 span, if you take children born between 68 and 75, do the math, you're following them through two- 2006, uh, at which point they're at least 30 years old and as old as 37 years old, all right? So with these data, we're able to relate. One of the things that this study did very, very well is measure uh, economic conditions. So you know uh, family income uh, reported in excruciating detail every year from the prenatal year all the way through childhood, and you can link it to adult outcomes uh, measured as late as age 37. Now, this isn't the kind of policy experiment that uh, the earlier study was. It doesn't take advantage of... Uh, the earned income tax credit or some other policy change. But one of the things it provides is an unusually rich set of uh, control variables that you can use in relating early childhood income to uh, these adult outcomes. So not only do you have the usual gang of suspects, parent education and so forth, but you have income later in childhood to control for, right? So in looking at early childhood income, you can control for income later in childhood to try to get a unique assessment of the importance of of early childhood income. The question is really, does early childhood income have an effect that's that's considerably stronger than whole childhood income? Is there a, a deviation from that permanent income effect that's unique to early childhood? And that's effectively the estimates I'll be presenting. The kind of control variables, all measured around the time of birth, the usual number of siblings, uh, whether the child was first born, parent family structure, parent schooling, there was a test score given. This is one of my favorites. Interviewers were asked how clean the dwelling was when they went and visited. And if you average uh, this dwelling cleanliness score over the first few years back in 1968 to 72, uh, and related to children's completed schooling, what you find is a very strong, uh, significant correlation that you can't make go away. So at this point, I'm looking around the room to try to see uh, the look of <laughs> anxiety, uh, or maybe anguish on the part of uh, parents. It, it's really a, an interesting finding. I think what it suggests is something about the role of parent efficiency uh, this is even controlling for the amount of housework people do. So somehow parents who have their act together more, uh, perhaps in cleaning their house, can have their act together more in the way that they run their households. Whatever it is, this is something we can control for to try to isolate the effects of, uh, of income. And there are various questions around the time of birth of parent expectations for their kids, parent achievement motivation, an unusual set of uh, control variables. So let me build up to the bottom line uh, somewhat slowly and just begin with very descriptive information relating in the first case here. Family income, not just early in childhood, but averaged over all of childhood. We've got the prenatal year, the birth year, and then ages 1 to 15, right? 17 years altogether. If you correlate 17-year average income 
with completed schooling measured around uh, age 30 with earnings. Here we're measuring earnings across as many years as there are data available after age 25, as late as age 37. Work hours, same thing. Poor health uh, is just a response to an excellent good, fair, poor kind of health scale. We, we have more outcomes in the paper, but uh, these are representative of what you find for the achievement domain, the first three variables, health. And on the behavior side, we know a uh, number of arrests, and we know for uh, females whether they had a out-of-wedlock birth prior to age 21. So those are the, the adult outcomes that I'm using here. And if you just run these correlations, uh, it says standardized regression coefficients, but if you standardize the outcomes and standardize the, the income, uh, what you get is what you'd get if you just ran a simple correlation. Uh, and indeed, you find the correlations that you'd expect, positive correlations between income and the achievement outcome, schooling, earnings, and work hours, uh, negative correlations with the undesirable outcomes of poor health, arrests, and out-of-wedlock births. Correlations vary quite a bit. They're strongest for the uh, schooling and earnings, but they're also quite strong for uh, out-of-wedlock birth. So that's, that's a simple correlation. Uh, we have this set of controls that uh, we can add in, and when you do that, you find all the correlations become much smaller adjusted correlations, right? This is a regression. Each of the outcomes on 17-year family income plus that set of uh, control variables uh, that I mentioned before. In two cases, poor health and arrests, you actually get an insignificant relationship between income and those two outcomes, but in all cases, you're getting a, a more modest adjusted correlation, as you'd expect, because some of the apparent effective income may really be an effect of parent education or, or family structure. This is treating income in a linear kind of way. So we're presuming that a, a 5,000 pound increase uh, has the same effect on these outcomes for a poor family as for a rich family. A more reasonable model might be a, a proportionate one where let's say a 50% increase in income from 10,000 to 15,000 pounds has as much of an effect as a 50% increase from 100,000 pounds to 150,000 pounds. So if we, if we take the logarithm of 17-year income and run these correlations. Now we're allowing for an equal proportionate effect. Uh, and what we're finding in the case of the achievement variables, the first three, is much stronger adjusted correlations. Right? This suggests that, that low income, uh, increments to low income probably matters a lot more than increments to higher income. Right? So now we're ready to ask about the effect of childhood stage-specific income, whether low income matters the most early in childhood uh, compared to other times. So what we can do is take this 17-year period and divide it up into the prenatal to age 5 block of time, the middle childhood time, ages uh, 6 to 10, and then the early adolescent time, 11 to 15. And roughly speaking, uh, the coefficients that we get on those three components of income, stage-specific, childhood stage-specific, roughly speaking, those three numbers ought to sum to the 17-year average, right? And in fact, they do. So if you look, for example, at, uh, at the, com the schooling result, uh, you see that early childhood income, this is the log of early childhood income, indeed has a significant relationship to uh, years of completed schooling. But early adolescent income has an even stronger correlation. 
right? In the U.S., uh, income matters a lot for uh, college going, and, uh, and this particular adolescent income effect seems to be as much explaining uh, who gets into college and who completes college as it does uh, who completes high school. So income seems to matter, but later income seems to matter a little bit more than early income. What's most remarkable is that when you look at adult earnings, averaged over many years between age 25 and 37, work hours averaged over the same period of time, it's only early income uh, that seems to matter. There's really no significant effect of uh, middle childhood income or early adolescent income uh, on these kind of outcomes. For the behavior and health outcomes, uh, early childhood income doesn't seem to matter very much at all. Right? It's, it's, the, uh, it's the adolescent income that matters. These are simple models still, and uh, one of the things we teach our students after they have a nice result is to spend as much time as possible trying to make those results go away. Right? And we spent months and months trying to make these results go away, and we succeeded in making most of them go away. But the two most durable results that we couldn't make go away was the link between early childhood income and adult earnings and adult work hours. Right? It's a very strong kind of relationship. Uh, if you run this model and say in kind of deviation form, let's control for whole childhood income and say, does early childhood income have a, a significantly bigger punch for these outcomes? The answer is clearly yes. The detailed pattern of effects I want to show just for uh, work hours. It's a very similar function for both uh, males and females. Here, adult work hours is the outcome. It's the same kind of analysis. All the control variables are there. We're controlling for income later in childhood. But we're taking this average prenatal to age five income and breaking it up and try to see the pattern of effects. All right? We know from the earlier slide that there ought to be an increase in work hours. But here we can really isolate in a very flexible way where the action is. Right? And the action is very much at the low end of the income distribution. So controlling for everything else, the, the lighter uh, blue represent 95% competence intervals around uh, uh, the darker blue line. It's the darker blue line you should pay attention to. So this is saying holding constant parent family structure, parent schooling levels, income later in childhood. Uh, children whose prenatal to age five income average below $10,000, not a large group, but, uh, but certainly present had uh, work hours in these adult years that averaged about 750 hours per year, right? a little more than a quarter time. For families with slightly higher incomes, that increases, that doubles to about 1,500 hours. Uh, by the time you get up to $30,000 of income, about 20,000 pounds per year, you're up to the, the full-time 50 weeks a year, 40 hours a week amount of labor supply. And then I'll, nothing happens after that, right? So there's very little variation and no systematic variation once you get beyond $30,000 of income during this early childhood period. So uh, there's a similar kind of pattern for, for earnings. Both point to early childhood because that's what's uh, being measured here and, and the lowest part of the income distribution under $30,000 a year is being most important for these adult outcomes. So poverty indeed seems to matter, but 
selectively, if you look across both sets of studies. Early poverty seems to matter more than poverty later in childhood. Early poverty appears to matter most for achievement-related outcomes in the first set of studies, test scores, in the, the PSID analyses for earnings and labor supply. What about policy? Let's try to translate that fifth of a standard deviation effect into something that uh, is more relevant for social policy. So those first three studies that I talked about suggest that $3,000 per year translates into about a fifth of a standard deviation higher test scores. One way to try to see how important that is is to look to the literature that relates test scores in childhood to adult earnings, right? There are a set of studies. One, uh, the most famous one, is based on the 1970 British cohort study that suggests that a fifth of a standard deviation higher achievement during childhood is associated uh, with about 4% higher lifetime earnings, right? Not a huge amount, certainly a statistically significant amount, it's on the order in, in U.S. terms of about $20,000. This is, if you look at the, the 4%, discounted back to, uh, to when someone starts their career, it's about $20,000. That's the kind of present value uh, benefit that you can compare to the costs of the, uh, uh, of the social program, in this case an income increment uh, that brought about this higher achievement effect. Uh, in the PSID work, if you think about percentage changes in the two outcomes, adult earnings and work hours, a $3,000 increase uh, in early income was associated with a 19% increase in adult earnings. So considerably larger than the, uh, the 4% from achievement, uh, suggesting perhaps that more success in labor market is much more than just having a higher achievement test score uh, in childhood. And indeed, you could imagine that being successful in the labor market is very much a function not only of, uh, of your achievement, but also, uh, also behavior. The translation for the work hours is about 135 more work hours. Uh, not overwhelming, but uh, really quite important in terms of uh, social policy terms. So suppose we take this seriously. We need to uh, keep doing our studies and confirming that what seems to be the case here, in fact, is. But uh, if we really think that economic conditions matter more in early childhood, then uh, maybe we should get serious about that with, uh, with social policy uh, and think about concentrating income transfers more on early childhood than, uh, than in later childhood periods. So the, the liberal solution is always to add more benefits. If you were going to add more benefits strategically to an existing income redistribution program, perhaps we should be thinking about adding benefits first to families with young children, right? If you're taking a harder-nosed approach in a budget-constant world, maybe we should even think of redistributing child allowances and other kinds of uh, family income credits away from, children with, uh, away from families with older children toward families with younger children. You'd get more uh, bang for the buck if you believe these, these results. Uh, and indeed, if you look across different countries, the French, as usual, have a very enlightened policy. I'm not sure it was informed by this research. I don't think it was. But they have a, a very generous program for uh, lone parents uh, with low incomes, very generous indeed, but it runs up until the child's third birthday, right? and then it stops completely. Uh, it's recognizing the importance of economic conditions in this very early childhood period. Of course, at age three, 
Uh, the French have a wonderful system of uh, nursery schools and so forth to uh, take care of children after that point. But it's certainly much less expensive if you concentrate benefits uh, in this kind of way in the early childhood period. So I'm hoping that this mixture of, of social policy and economics does Sidney Ball's legacy a small measure of justice. Uh, I would add uh, it's important in thinking about child policy to mix in some developmental psychology as well. Thank you very much.